Hello and welcome. My name is George Miley. I'm the author of the book, Leaders Following. And we are beginning to record the different chapters or lessons that are part of this book on leadership following the practice and example and teaching of Jesus. Um, before we begin to get into the individual chapters, people have asked for us to give an overview of the overall book, to give an opportunity to understand how everything fits together. And I think that's a very good um, request and suggestion because as I was writing the book, I realized there's a flow to this. Uh, and each chapter kind of fits into what has gone before and lays the foundation for what is to come. So in this session, we want to simply present uh, an overview of leaders following. The, the, the whole thesis from which this was born is the idea of leadership and how do we learn about leadership? Um, it's so typical for us to go to the secular world or the business world to learn about leadership. And of course, the secular world and business world has a lot to offer. But what about Jesus? Was Jesus a leader? Does he have anything to teach us about leadership? And so, in Leaders Following, what we do is step back from all of the voices and we submit ourselves to Jesus and we ask Jesus, Lord, teach us the essence of your leadership. Now, uh, to whom is uh, Leaders Following or for whom is Leaders Following written? I think the first um, group that comes to my mind anyway is young emerging leaders say between in their 20s or 30s. Of course, those who are in their late teens would certainly be included and welcomed, as is the case of those in their early 40s. So younger emerging leaders that are beginning in their leadership but needing more support and direction and help. And then a second group is... Um, those who've matured in their leadership and find themselves more and more in the place in life where they are mentoring, training, helping, supporting younger leaders. Actually, there's a third group, and that is leaders who have experienced wounding in their uh, ministry. You know, I would uh, identify myself as in that category. I came to the point in my 40s when I had been in Christian leadership for 20 years. And I think many would say that I showed myself a very effective and fruitful leader. And in many cases, that was true. But it was also true that there were issues in my life that had never been dealt with, areas of wounding, areas of wrong thinking, areas of emotional dysfunction. And I found that they came bubbling to the surface. And I came to a point in my own leadership of, of deep wounding. 
so much so that I had to withdraw from leadership for an extended period of time to seek my own healing. And so all of this is part of what leaders following is designed to address. How do we encourage and develop younger leaders? How do we learn to serve them if we're in that place of serving them? And what does healing, what role does healing play in the ongoing maturing uh, of a leader in his or her leadership? Maybe it would be good to say something about the tweet format. Um, a leader's following is written in a tweet format. People have often asked me, George, how on earth did you uh, get into this? Well, I've written actually an earlier book in tweet format as well called Maturing Toward Wholeness in the Inner Life. And I was writing in tweets before Twitter came into being, so I wasn't trying to copy Twitter. This was a form of study that I developed on my own. I would get a book that to me had real wisdom, and I would ask myself, what what are the essence of this? What are the what are the essential defining truths and characteristics in what is being written? And what is filler? And so I would go through and pull out the um, predominant fundamental concepts. And when I started writing, I didn't want to write a book that had hundreds and hundreds of pages that the reader had to wade through to try to find the real essence of it. I wanted the essence to be, boom, right up there and available to the reader. So that's the whole origin and essence of writing in the tweet format. And actually, in um, Maturing Toward Wholeness in the Inner Life, this previous book, we have received some very strong, positive response. People say that they really helped by having the essence immediately available to them. That's a real, that's a real gift. Leaders Following is a book for people to read. It's also a course of study. Each chapter is actually a class or a session, again, that fit together. Leaders Following is designed to be used in academic institutions, in graduate courses on Christian leadership, undergraduate courses on leadership. It's designed to be used by mission organizations in developing leaders, churches developing leaders. It's designed to be used in small groups. We're finding that particularly this uh, tweet format is very powerful in the use uh, of small groups. So Leaders Following is written for a broad um, audience and is designed to be used in many different various contexts. You know, I'd like to start, uh, before we get into the individual chapters or sessions of Leaders Following, I'd like to start with a... Um, passage from the Gospels, from Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, that to me um, highlights or helps us get into this overall thesis. Was Jesus a leader? What are the characteristics that reveal the essence of his leadership? How did this work with the leaders that Jesus himself was mentoring? 
So Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, this is a significant um, passage here. What's going on? Human beings live, we'll see this as we get into the leadership of Jesus. Human beings live at the junction of two realities. The seen world and the unseen world. Those two come together in Jesus. And we will never understand the essence of Christian leadership until we understand and become comfortable in the unseen world. Jesus is getting ready to call Peter and his companions into discipleship, which is in leadership training. He's beginning to call them to be trained to be the leaders of the movement that he had come to catalyze. In order to train them for that, in order to get them ready for that, he had to introduce them to the unseen world. So he says to Peter, go put down your nets. And Peter said, you know, Lord, we worked all night and we haven't caught anything. And I'm a professional fisherman. You're telling me you're a rabbi. You're telling me to go lay down the nets. I know more about the nets than you do. But Peter overcame his reluctance. And he said, okay, Lord, at your word, we'll let down the nets. When they had done this, the nets enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So what's going on here? Peter had been confronted with the unseen world, with spiritual reality. And having been confronted by it, he was undone. Jesus had introduced him to the reality that he was calling Peter and his companions into. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. How did Jesus respond to Simon? Do not be afraid, Simon. This is such a prevalent message that leaders need to hear. Do not be afraid. I am Jesus. I am here. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So that's what Christian leadership is all about, catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Christian leadership training which is discipleship, involves leaving everything and following Jesus. It may sound like a hard message, but it actually is a message of huge benefit because when we give up everything, we receive everything. When we give up everything that has to do with the old life, we receive everything that has to do with the life that Jesus came to give.
Well, thank you for sharing uh, those thoughts with me from the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. I'd like, with your permission, just to pray in a very short prayer and entrust this time to the Lord. Is that okay if we do that? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see your interaction with Peter and his companions. And our hearts go out, Lord, as you were teaching Peter and those with him. We ask you, Lord Jesus, teach us. Teach us your way. We acknowledge you as the supreme leader in all human history. Show us your way. Reproduce your life in us. Use this time now for your glory. Communicate your truth to us. We pray, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's begin to get into the individual chapters or classes that are part of uh, leaders following. Uh, The first session is, was Jesus a leader? So what I'm going to do as we go through this is read the title of the chapter, and then the subtitle, and then say a couple of words about it just to help you begin to get into the overall flow of what we're talking about here. So chapter number one, the title is, Was Jesus a Leader? And here's the subtitle. The ultimate test of leadership is not what the leader does. It's what others do as a result of what the leader does. The ultimate test of leadership, the ultimate expression of fruitful leadership is not what the leader does. Do great things, build big churches, build big Christian organizations, become a wonderful preacher, write wonderful books. It's not that. It's what others do as a result of what the leader does. So the essence of leadership, the essence of Christian leadership, is influence. So when we think of Jesus, and we think of the images we have in our minds about who a leader is, Jesus hardly qualified. He didn't do great external events. But the influence that has come from his life has expanded down through 20 years, 20 centuries of years, and continues to grow. His followers are now in every continent, every country, every ethnic group, and the number of his followers continues to grow. So the influence that Jesus triggered by his life is the supreme legacy and testimony to his leadership. Chapter number two, the reality that Jesus knew, subtitle, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So remember that situation where the Jewish leaders were saying he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So Jesus is correcting them, and he's saying, if I am casting out demons by the authority and the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So again, we're back now to these two realities in which human life exists, the material world and the immaterial world, the seen world and the unseen world. And the authority that Jesus exercised was the authority of the kingdom of God that is rooted in the unseen world. Um, you know, Jesus, his whole orientation, his whole teaching, his whole life triggered in people, who is this man? What is he talking about? He is saying that the first will be last, the last will be first. He's saying the poor will be blessed and the rich will be sent away empty. He's saying that to get material food, clothing, shelter, trust God, seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And people said, what is he talking about? He's not making any sense. He's saying things that we can't relate to. What is he talking about? And the answer is, he was talking about the kingdom. So to understand Jesus' leadership, its roots, its expression, we have to understand what is the reality that Jesus saw and from which he was living. Chapter number three, hiddenness. Among you stands one whom you do not know. Sub, sub, uh, subtitle. Remember the people, John said this to the people, there's somebody standing among you that you don't know. He's hidden from you. You don't see him. You don't know who he is, but he's there. So what is this whole thing about hiddenness? Um, what has that got to do with Christian leadership? Jesus understood what God is doing. And Christian leaders must be able to discern what God is doing, not what is man doing. So in most cases where we are called to lead, what God is really doing is not what is happening in the visible world. It's what is going on in the invisible world. It's what's going on in hiddenness. It's from hiddenness that Jesus emerged. He spent his first 30 years in hiddenness. It was from hiddenness that Jesus ministered. He ministered primarily in Galilee and not around Judea or Jerusalem, certainly not in Rome. And hiddenness is where character is formed. We'll talk about that in a minute. The role of character in Christian leadership. So a primary essence and characteristic of Jesus' leadership was hiddenness. Chapter number four, submission. Subtitle, the words of Jesus. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus learned submission. He learned submission to his father. And as he learned submission to his father, he learned submission to others. He learned submission to Rome. He learned submission to the Jewish leaders. He learned submission to his parents. He learned submission to others. And submission, the capacity to submit, is so foundational uh, in the development of Christian leadership. So 
let me say this to you. The development of Christian leadership is the development of a person to carry spiritual authority. That's what God wants. Men and women who are trustworthy to carry spiritual authority. But until we learn how to submit to spiritual authority, we are not ready to be entrusted with spiritual authority. The power of spiritual authority, spiritual authority is expressed in submission. Spiritual authority is expressed relationally. God has called the church to be unified. For the church to be unified, the leaders of the church must learn to live in submission. Chapter number five, character. The enduring influence of a leader will not come from his or her achievements, but from the person he or she becomes. Character. You know, brothers and sisters, I we can hardly say too much about the role of character. If we look at church history, we see over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, how Christian leaders have malfunctioned because of inadequate character development. We see that in our day. Unfortunately, the stories of this are multiple, and they're in, they're in the public media. This has happened. That has happened. I was just reading this morning about a really well-known international group of churches that are coming apart because of malfunctions in the leaders. It's a malfunction of character. So um, God is calling Christian leaders to the character of Jesus. And here is an example of the superficiality that grips far too many places among God's people today, a crippling superficiality that leaves us with the idea that brokenness and failure is normal in the Christian life and there is no opportunity to get beyond that until we die and go to heaven. I just want to submit to you the thought that this is not what the New Testament teaches. This is not what Jesus taught. This is not what the apostles taught. Jesus taught the apostles taught that we have been given a new life, and that new life is to be developed and cultured, cultivated until Christ-likeness is formed in the inner life. So that kind of leads us to um, chapter number six, spiritual formation. I love this verse, Galatians 4.19. I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So this was what Paul was grappling with, with the Galatians. Carnality, life in the flesh. And he was groaning within until Christ was formed in them. Um, how is Christ-like character formed? So we've just talked about how crucial character is. Well, if, if Christ-like character is so crucial, and if this is what Jesus and the apostles talked about, 
How is Christ-like character formed? Where do we go to get Christ-like people? How do we mentor, train, encourage Christ-likeness? How do we do that? Now, every Christian leader needs to know that. If I don't know how Christ-like character is formed, I'm not in a position to lead myself, much less leading anybody else. And Christ-like character is formed in spiritual formation. So much to say about that. There's a whole chapter in that. But let's move to the next chapter, chapter number seven, discipleship. So here is the words of Jesus. We've just made a statement about what Jesus and the apostles taught. This is just one of just any number of statements we could refer to. Here is Luke 6:40. Jesus saying to the disciples, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus' words to the disciples. Every disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So spiritual formation. How does spiritual formation take place? In discipleship. So follow me on this. Discipleship leads to spiritual formation. Spiritual formation leads to Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness leads to being ready for the mature expression of Christian leadership, discipleship. Chapter number eight, inner healing. So, inner healing. So, in order for spiritual formation to take place, we are all going to need to experience inner healing. Why is that? Because sin has more consequences than just guilt. Guilt is an effect or consequence of sin, but sin has many more consequences than guilt. And so those consequences produce brokenness in the human person. Wounding, wounding of thought, wounding of emotion, wounding of response, wounding of relationships. And so discipleship, as it moves us toward maturity, will inevitably bring us into inner healing. So in the chapter on inner healing, we have a whole list of subjects. How have I been wounded and how have I been healed? inner wounding. Chapter 9, authority. The Jewish leader said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, Jesus said, now I will ask you a question. The authority of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? And of course, they didn't want to say what they really thought about that. So Jesus said, well, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So real quick, because there's a whole chapter on authority, let me say this. There is authority that is linked with position. I am this. I am the pastor. I am the leader. I am the CEO. I am the international director. I am the founder. That's position. Every leader who's authority is rooted in position will be insecure. 
True spiritual authority is not related in position. It's the authority that God puts upon a person's life. The hand of God upon the person produces spiritual authority. That's the authority that Jesus had. Okay, chapter number 10. We're moving forward here. Suffering. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So, suffering. Such a powerful example of this to me is Matthew 16. Remember when Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah? Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Messiah. So Jesus immediately, the next subject, Jesus says to the disciples, you know, we're going up to Jerusalem and I will be turned over to the Gentiles and they will crucify me. And Peter, of course, immediately says, no, Lord, that will not, that cannot happen to you. So here's another example. What's really going on is going, is in the area of the unseen. All Peter saw was the scene. Jesus is talking about being crucified. That's seen. That's the natural world. That's the real world. Peter doesn't want any part of that. Jesus saw what was going on in the unseen world and what God's purposes were. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, um, suffering. So, do you want to be a leader? Leadership is going to result in suffering. Now let's move quickly from suffering to chapter 11, love, because these two things go together. The words of Jesus, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So, so much to say about love. It was central to who Jesus was. It was central to who his disciples were. But there is this incredible connection between suffering and love, as we respond correctly to suffering, the capacity to love grows within us. And those who love in a beautiful, beautiful Christ-like way are those who have suffered love. Okay, chapter 12, messaging. You know, as I was writing Leaders Following, I sometimes I was wondering, you know, am I writing two books? Because this is supposed to be a book about leadership. And here I'm writing about spiritual formation and about discipleship and about character and about inner healing. There are these two books. And the more I thought about that and prayed about that, the more I felt, no, these two belong together. So actually, we're now beginning to move in leaders following kind of beyond the whole area of inner formation to more of the external expressions of internal formation when it comes to leadership. So messaging, you know, a leader has to be able to message. Messaging is a very important part of leadership. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Acts 1.3. So even 
after Jesus had risen from the dead, he was talking about the kingdom. And this was central in his message, the kingdom of God. Uh, so uh, as we let Jesus teach us about leadership, we have got to come to a clear understanding of what he meant by the kingdom of God, crucial for messaging. Chapter 13, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, the individual perspective. So now we begin to get beyond just the subject of messaging to the core message of Jesus, which was the kingdom of God. And we've got three chapters here on the kingdom of God, so they kind of form just a mini um, kind of subset of leaders following. Actually, we've just been through one of those, the chapters on character, spiritual formation, discipleship, and inner healing. They kind of form a mini group. Now we've got kind of a mini group on the gospel of the kingdom. So chapter 13 Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, the individual perspective. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing. Jesus branded his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. So what we need to do is come to an understanding of the gospel of the kingdom that embraces character, spiritual formation, discipleship, and inner healing. How do they all connect with the gospel of the kingdom? But then, um, chapter 14, what about beyond the individual? So God is transforming individuals. Why is he doing that? Well, for the benefit of the individuals, of course. But what about the community? What about the neighborhood? What about the city? What about the country? What about society as a whole? Does the gospel of the kingdom have any relevance for society as a whole? So um, chapter 14 is Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, the social perspective. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So Jesus taught us to pray that the kingdom that he talked about would come on earth. That's beyond the individual. That's the kingdom permeating society. And just one note on that. If we think the kingdom comes top down, we haven't understood Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Go back to all Jesus talked about. The kingdom of God is in the Gospels 80 different times. So there's tons of information about the gospel of the kingdom in the gospel. If we think it's top down, we've misunderstood. The kingdom of God grows bottom up. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. You take the small grains, smallest of all the grains, plant it in the ground, begins to grow, begins to grow, begins to grow, begins. Pretty soon it's a big tree and the birds of the air are nesting in its branches. Bottom up the gospel of the kingdom, the social perspective. And then there's chapter 15, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, the catalyst. So just examples of individuals. How does God's kingdom change society? How does it happen? 
individuals are transformed into Christ-likeness, and as they go out to live their lives through them, bottom-up dynamic, the society has changed. And so here we've got just a whole chapter on examples of what we're talking about with that. You know, one wonderful example to me is Wilbur Wilberforce. Remember him? He was a 19th century Englishman, came from the upper levels of society, and in Parliament spent years and years and years working to um, stop the slave trade. So when we think of slavery and how evil that was, the cessation of the slave trade in the British colonies was to a great extent catalyzed by a man transformed into Christ-likeness, carrying out his ministry in the context that he found himself. So now we begin to move more and more into the formation of individual leaders. Chapter 17, calling. God calls. What does it mean for God to call? We deal with that in that chapter. Chapter 18, apostolic calling. You know, um, this chapter on apostolic calling, I wrote about in my first book, Loving the Church, Blessing the Nations. And we have received such a strong response to that teaching on apostolic calling. Um, and so we, we deal with that more in uh, leaders following. Uh, chapter 19, Identifying and Developing Apostolic Leaders. So apostolic leaders, what do we mean by that? In, in talking about apostolic calling, what we're talking about is leaders who are called and gifted by God to initiate new works. So the whole idea of the kingdom of God spreading throughout the earth requires leaders that are called and gifted of God to initiate. So if that's what God is calling some leaders to do, not all leaders, but some leaders, how do we begin to identify? How do, if we're looking for those leaders, what characteristics, particularly in younger leaders, even to, even to late teenagers or early 20s, what characteristics might these people show that might indicate they're being called and gifted of God in this way. And so that's what this chapter is about, um, identifying and developing apostolic leaders. Then we go on in chapter 20, the fivefold ministers of Ephesians 4. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, the significance of those roles, then we have um, chapter 21, a discussion of those ministers themselves. Then in chapter 22, we talk about gifting. So there is, a, there is a relationship between calling and gifting. What is that relationship? Well, when God calls somebody to do something, a leader to do something, he gives us gifts to empower us to be able to do what he's called us to do. So 
an indication of calling, an important indication of calling is gifting. How is a person gifted? Now, how do you know how a person is gifted? Well, some people like to give you a test. Here's a test. Go you fill out this test. I'm not against the test. But here's another way to know how a person is gifted. Put them in ministry and get them doing various things. And when they do some things, they will be worn out and they won't be very fruitful. Okay, they're not gifted in that way. When they do other things, they will be energized. They will be thrilled. They will know great joy and they will be fruitful. Well, when I'm ministering in a way that is fruitful and gives me a great joy, there's a really good sense that I'm gifted of God in that area. And that area begins to point to how I am called. So then chapter 23, setting the gifts in order, because when it comes to the various gifts, um, a role of leadership is to set these gifts in order. Um, chapter 24, anointing. What do we mean by anointing? So there is the Holy Spirit in me. Actually, that's the new birth, the Holy Spirit in me. There's also the Holy Spirit upon me. And the Holy Spirit upon me is what we mean by anointing. And so in this chapter on anointing, we move through the writings of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And it is amazing. Passage after passage, passage after passage, passage after passage that speaks to the Holy Spirit coming upon a person for the sake of power and ministry anointing. Then chapter 25, release. So as a leader is developed, as calling begins to be identified, as gifting begins to be identified, as character begins to develop, there comes a time when that leader is ready to be released. That's a very important process. It should not be done too quickly. It should not be done too late. Leadership release, there's a whole chapter on that. Then two more chapters to finish up our course here. Chapter 26, how Jesus launched his kingdom movement. So here is Jesus. His father sent him into the world with a mission. What's the mission? The mission is catalyze a movement that will change the course of human history. How did Jesus go about that? So in this chapter, how Jesus launched his kingdom movement, we list 12 steps that Jesus took in launching that movement. And then the last chapter, chapter 27, characteristics of a work of God. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. So characteristics of a work of God. So let's close by saying this. Our Christian traditions are different. You know, if you think of the spectrum of Christian traditions, Messianic Jew, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, all the different Protestants, free churches, many, many different traditions. But you know, the work of the Holy Spirit in the human being is the same regardless of what the tradition is. And so, 
Our final chapter is characteristics of a work of God that are similar regardless of what tradition you're in. For example, I'll just give you a couple. For example, insignificant beginnings. Works of God begin with insignificant beginnings. Second, where there is life, there is growth. Third, um, opposition and suffering. So, there's a whole chapter on that because in the end, when we talk about leadership, what we want is the birthing of new works that will grow the kingdom uh, until Christ comes again. Well, brothers and sisters, thank you for letting me go over that whole um, spectrum of leaders following. I hope that this is helpful to just let you know what this is all about. And we invite you to follow with us as we move in much more depth through each of these chapters or classes. I'd like to close uh, with a prayer. And I'd like to um, move to a prayer in the book of Psalms, Psalm 71, that has been a really meaningful prayer uh, for me now personally over many years. I think it's going to be meaningful to many of you. Uh, it's about passing on what God may have entrusted to those of us that are a little bit older, passing that on to those who are younger and who come after us in the faith. And I just want some of you younger ones to know my heart goes out to you. How can I be a part of your life? I don't know how that could possibly work. But my prayers are with you. My heart is with you. And my desire is that somehow what we're doing here will be a benefit to you. Let me close with this prayer. Pray with me, if you would, from Psalm 71. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.